Welcome to Pushback. I'm Aaron Maté. Joining me is Malika Jabali, attorney, writer, activist, columnist for The Guardian, reporting from Kenosha, Wisconsin, the site of the shooting of Jacob Blake by police and the ensuing protests. Malika, welcome to Pushback. Hi, Aaron. Thanks for having me. Your thoughts on what you've seen so far? It is quite disturbing, actually. When I first arrived, you could see the aftermath of uh, some of the uprising. And it's really not that that is so disturbing. It was the reaction to it from, well, first of all, the, the fact that you have a young man, 29 years old, Jacob Blake, who was shot at point blank range seven to eight times. There have been no repercussions for the officer. Sir, people out here have very few, have very little recourse to fight back. So they're fighting back with in whatever ways that they can. It kind of reminds me of folks on the border, Palestinians on the, the Gaza Strip, who are fighting back with whatever resources they have, rocks thrown at tanks. That's precisely the dynamic that we have here with the uh, Black Lives Matter protesters. And then you also have this radical right wing who, you know, I will say is a minority, but clearly an armed and dangerous minority who have descended onto the city. And instead of calling that out, what you're seeing in response to someone who has killed two people, shot three in total, is uh, a welcoming of this kind of behavior. So I've seen some double standards. I heard the gunshots go out that night when Kyle Rittenhouse shot uh, those individuals. I've seen the response, the uh, disproportionate response from police officers with tear gas. I still have some tear gas like remnants. It went into my room. It went into my eyes and, and my uh, my lips and my throat when I was out there with the protesters in the park, which is kind of the central, central point for all of this. And it's just, it's been very disturbing to see um, a loss of life, basically double tragedies through this incident. Can you talk more about the interaction between Kyle Rittenhouse, the 17-year-old militia member, Trump supporter, who shot and killed two people, and the police? There was footage of members of this militia getting water from the police. We need water. We need water. We got a couple. We got to save a couple, but we'll give you a couple. We appreciate you guys. We really do. Uh, Daniel Miskinis, the chief of the Kenosha Police, was asked was talking about the killing, and he described it as an individual was involved in the use of firearms to resolve a conflict. The last night, the 17-year-old individual from Antioch, Illinois was involved in the use of firearms to reserve, to, excuse me, to, uh, to resolve whatever conflict was in place. The result of it was two people are dead. That's par for the course with how we describe any sort of shooting of folks who are black and their allies. It's some sort of passive voice, an officer involved shooting, a vigilante uh, involved shooting in, the, in this case. And I came back, um, I'm in my room now in the hotel room, which I can see the park from here. Uh, that's where everything basically takes place. And so that night I wasn't, I, you know, I had to look out for my own safety. I don't have a bullet 
proof vest. I don't have that kind of material for conflict journalism. Um, I came actually to cover something different, um, related but not exactly the same. And so I had to kind of piece things together based on what I saw during the day that evening, about an hour before I, I retired for the night, and what I saw in, in the morning. But my eyes were a little bit attuned to what folks who were on the ground, um, like right as it happened, what they saw, because I saw the early manifestations of it. People were saying that the police officers kind of pushed protesters in that direction. And so I saw with my own eyes the four armored trucks that moved the protesters towards Sheridan Road. And Sheridan Road is where this happened, this incident happened. It's a, a main corridor in Kenosha. I saw uh, hundreds of police officers aligned fully across Sheridan Road, continued to throw tear gas at protesters. And whether they coordinated with these armed vigilantes or not, what the effect of it is that they ended up pushing them towards where they were. And so this took place just about six blocks from where I am right now, about six or seven blocks from where you guys see me. And so you can hear, you heard, I heard the, the gunshots go off. And so based on what, you know, Twitter had to be on the ball, these Twitter investigators and local journalists, you know, Aaron, you know, both you and I, we both have critiques of mass media and they tend to not be out here for these things. Um, and so local journalists were out there and they filmed him, uh, Kyle, the, the killer, shoot somebody in um, one area that had a lot of vehicles parked. So he shot somebody in the head there and his, the, the protesters' friends were giving, rendering aid. Like they, I think they wrapped his T-shirt around his head. Um, and then he ran down Sheridan Road and that's where other protesters went to what looks like to disarm him because he just shot somebody in the head. So they ran after him, uh, looks apparently to disarm him, but that's where a lot of the, um, the, the narrative tends to start is if it was just some mob that went after him and not as if it was their own self-defense um, from him having just shot their friend, their colleague. They ran after him and that's when he pursued, proceeded to not just shoot someone who was armed, um, who was in front of him, but they all, he also shot out into the crowd several times as he was running away after he already shot somebody else. So what's the claim for self-defense for that? And then what's worse is he has his arms up as if he's ready to surrender, goes towards the cops. And not only do they not apprehend him, they tell him to get out of the way. They ask him, where was, where did the shooting, well, you know, somebody injured. They tell him to get out of the street and he just moseys on by them. He drives off back to Illinois where he's from. In terms of the shooting of Jacob Blake by, by Kenosha police, the officer has been identified seven-year uh, police uh, veteran Rustin Shesky. The Wisconsin Attorney General described the incident. He said that they found a knife in Jacob Blake's vehicle. That was taken by right-wing pundits as somehow damning for Jacob Blake and as, as someone that could justify the shooting. What do you know about what actually happened at that shooting? Yes, I... I have not followed uh, the details of the shooting itself that closely other than I think what most people got, like I think most people have heard that this is the claim that they're making. We know uh, now who the police officer was. We don't know, you know they've, they've identified him. We don't know what the next steps are gonna be, what the repercussions are going to be. 
if there are going to be any charges filed against him. I think we're all awaiting that. Um, I went to the site of the shooting and um, there are neighbors there, obviously, like still coping with a very traumatic, very, very traumatic experience. So it just reminds me a lot of Philando Castile. I think a lot of the media coverage, which they get from, you know, they get their reports from police departments and police departments are there, of course, and, and unions are there to cover themselves. So we always hear reports about what might have justified someone getting killed uh, at point blank range. Why do we justify Philando Castile's, you know, how do we justify someone's murder or someone's killing when there's authorities involved? So there's always a reason. There's a forfeited check. Someone hit somebody else. It was self-defense. It was this and it was that. But we can just look at the history of how we've covered these events and how we've let police officers off the hook. None of that, none of that is valid. It's not valid. You don't shoot somebody seven, eight times, point blank range, grab them by their shirt and restrain them, period. And I think the problem is that we live in a right wing country. It just historically, it's a right wing country compared to everywhere else in the world. So we always have to start with that premise. There will always be ways to justify gun violence. But if you go anywhere else in the world, it's absurd that you can have an armed vigilante just walking around with an assault rifle willy nilly in public spaces like this. It's absurd that we have police officers who just take out their guns for mild indiscretions or small furtive movements. And then, and this is not just some, I should say uh, that they will kill black people specifically for it. Because we, again, we just saw a white kid, you know, the 17 year old who just shot two and killed two people, shot three and nothing happened to him. So if we care this much about, you know, honing down on crime, you're talking about somebody with an assault rifle versus a suspected gun knife that you never even saw. I wanted to get your response to what's been said at the Republican National Convention. A lot of dog whistling Vice President Mike Pence saying that if Trump is not reelected, that people will not be safe in Joe Biden's America. Joe Biden would double down on the very policies that are leading to violence in America's cities. The hard truth is you won't be safe in Joe Biden's America. You're even seeing some Democrats voicing concerns that the protests could hurt their electoral chances in, in states like Wisconsin. A headline in Politico today, as Wisconsin grapples with social unrest, some Democrats fear that the looting and rioting and clashes are feeding Trump's argument that this is what life would be like under the so-called radical left. I think, first of all, it's an illogical argument because this is our life right now under a radical right. Trump is in power. This is not like 1968 where we people were deciding between um, uh, Kennedy and Nixon. We already have our Nixon. Nixon is in power and there is still this kind of unrest. So you, there's no comparison. I know he's like tried to harken back to that era and it's it's not... Uh, you can't draw the same parallel because he's been in office for three years. We have a completely weakened public infrastructure. He's contributed to it. Obviously, we know that Democrats have done very little to combat it. So instead of falling into his narrative, Democrats, and, and I say this actually as somebody who's independent, so what people do uh, with their own, you know, 
how Democrats or Republicans strategize is, is completely on them. But we do know that the Democrats, they purport to support Black Lives Matter. They purport to support these progressive policies. So hone in on that. Hone in on the fact that this is actually under a right wing regime and it's under placating right wing interests. Even if you have DAs and um, maybe some members of the police force that are Democrats, they're fundamentally right wing forces that they are trying to um, placate. So when you have a Joe Biden, for instance, who goes on TV and he talks about these super predators like Hillary Clinton did, he's placating right wing voters. He's placating law and order voters. And in a state like Wisconsin, Trump did not actually really win over white Wisconsin. In 2016, the voter white voter turnout actually fell by 1%, which represents about 100,000 voters. So 100,000 fewer white people actually voted in Wisconsin. And then you had 88,000 black voters who did not vote in Wisconsin. So instead of flipping Wisconsin red, what actually happened is that a lot of Democrats stayed home precisely because of Trump's rhetoric. He got about 700 more votes than Mitt, uh, Mitt Romney did. Hillary Clinton lost over 200,000 votes compared to Barack Obama. So Wisconsin is actually, in many places, a progressive state. They purport progressive policy. The city of Milwaukee had a string of socialist mayors uh, in the 1900s. They have like a presence of uh, the Democratic Socialists of America. It's where a lot of progressive roots have been fomented in this country. So to align yourself with Donald Trump's rhetoric completely misunderstands the history of Wisconsin and it also misunderstands its present. And you were one of the few journalists who after 2016 actually went to the Midwest, wrote an article for Current Affairs called The Color of Economic Anxiety, speaking to black people, especially in Milwaukee. And you were one of the few people to actually talk about the reasons why they stayed home in 2016 as opposed to those who were hyper-focusing on the white working class or were blaming Russian bots for black people not voting for Hillary Clinton. I'm wondering your thoughts on that today as you return to the Midwest and now we're in the midst of another campaign and whether you see any prospects for having a higher black turnout, whether any of the concerns that you saw were neglected back in 2016 are being addressed in the campaign now. It's, it's honestly a little bit hard to say. That's actually why I came to Wisconsin is to understand what the political mood was, <clears throat> excuse me. But uh, people are dealing with something very immediate and urgent right now with the uh, police killing of Jacob Blake, of course, and now this second tragedy. So it's really hard to get people's perspectives on, you know, it's almost silly to say, you know, well, how are you gonna vote for president? Is Biden gonna do it? And people are like, I'm not even have asked. And people are like, I'm not I'm not thinking about that right now. Like, my, I lost my cousin. I lost my homie. Um, I don't know. Like, maybe. So it, there's I definitely wouldn't say it's enthusiastic. I think people are so kind of they're just grappling with something that is, is hurting their hearts. Um, people who knew him personally or they are kind of reliving tragedies that they've seen elsewhere throughout the Midwest. Philando Castile's girlfriend who was in the car and who actually shot. The, the footage, she came here to uh, support the Black Lives Matter protesters. So there's this kind of air of support from um, a lot of black people in the Midwest who are coming to support what's happening because they're just reliving tragedy after tragedy. So I think that would explain, you know, how, of course, like there was a decline because in 2016, actually you had a similar 
circumstance where a police officer killed somebody named Sybil Smith in Milwaukee. And then they had the lowest black voter turnout in the state's recorded history. Mm. And, you know, suppression ex explains like a very, you know, numerically, just based on the data, it explains a very, very small percentage of it. And most of it was because of just interest in the candidates. So I would not be surprised if that same dynamic happens again. But because of all the, the crisis around the country, perhaps, you know, folks are going to push back against Donald Trump. Um, but it's really hard to say right now because I, I think it's still fresh on the minds that people are dealing with a tragedy. And what do you make of the Democrats right now? Joe Biden has portrayed himself as an ally of the Black Lives Matter movement. Do you think that you're seeing anything from the Democratic Party in the way of concrete steps to take the concerns that have been raised seriously and to propose policies that could address systemic racism and police brutality? Absolutely not. If you look at the opportunities that they had just uh, within the summer, you have somebody like uh, Kamala Harris, who was, who was chosen as the VP just before she was chosen. She voted no on decreasing the Pentagon budget by 10%. You don't even have to be super progressive to think that that is necessary when it's in the billions or is it is it in the trillion? Is, is it like a trillion at this point? I can't even remember. But it it's so our defense budget is so much a part of our, our larger budget that they can afford 10 percent to be able to supplement people's lives in the midst of an unprecedented economic crisis that's going to happen from coronavirus with 30 million or so unemployed or I think it went up to 40 million now. There needs to be some reprieve, and it does not exist. And so Kamala refused to vote no. Excuse me, she voted no on decreasing the Pentagon budget. Joe Biden was given the opportunity to announce this was right at the beginning of coronavirus, whether or not he would support Medicare for all. He refuses to do so. It was left off of the Democratic Party platform. So there are a, there's a lot of rhetoric, a lot of optics politics of wearing kente cloth and kneeling and praying and t hashtagging Black Lives Matter. But when it comes to actual policy making, we are not seeing that from the Democrats. For people who are watching the situation in Kenosha unfold through the coverage of the media, of the, of the mainstream media, do you have any thoughts on how people can approach what they are processing on TV, sort of language to watch out for and be skeptical of? Uh, ways in which issues like this are covered that are just not reflective at all of reality and not taking into account the sort of systemic inequalities and biases that underpin them? Yeah, I think for one, we can't normalize people killing people to defend property. We can't ask, act as if this is a normal conversation to have. Like that has to be uh, bucked immediately. I don't even get into to debates with people who try and argue that uh, when I make the, the case for why uh, this, this, you know, these confrontations might be, you know, actually productive. Unfortunately, the way that our society works, because America is steeped in violence, it is only when people bring out, uh, you know, the matches that we start to think about the gasoline, that we start to think about the systemic issues that lead to all of this. So it's only when a car dealership is in flames that we start to ask about black lives. So we cannot let the, um, we can't let the uprising and people's discomfort with damage to property betray the reality that so many people have been suffering 
for decades. So many people in Wisconsin have been suffering from really extreme economic anxiety that's arguably the worst in the country. We can't let that distract from the fact that black men are incarcerated at a higher rate in Wisconsin than anywhere else in the country. That black men have a higher joblessness rate in Wisconsin than anywhere else in the country. And so these, this rebellion gives us an opportunity to talk about that. But unfortunately, that's the way that it works. Until we talk about the rebellion and until people see it, things don't happen. Things don't change. In 1968, when we had the Fair Housing Act, after years of discrimination, years of segregation, when you know Brown v. Board was passed 14 years prior, public institutions were still segregated. It literally was not until the assassina assassination of Martin Luther King and there were rebellions in over 100 cities throughout the country that the Fair Housing Act passed. So as long as America responds to, you know, black confrontation and black armed resistance with positive steps, as long as they react by finally giving us policy when we do that and they don't respond to peaceful protests, this is what's going to keep happening. I know that uh, you are involved in grassroots politics at the local level. For people who are feeling cynical about national politics right now, especially given the choices they have in the presidential race, what can you tell us about organizing on more local issues and what kind of change you see happening there? Well, we know that policing is generally a state and a municipal issue. So if this is something you actually care about, if you care about, you know, communities not having to see this kind of um, desperation from protesters on a ongoing basis, then su support, you know, the underlying cause. And a lot of the underlying issues is racism in police forces with uh, assault that goes unnoticed, that goes, you know, for victims who don't get hashtags. And make sure that you, you know, support policies that eliminate those kinds of encounters with police departments and regular civilians. So that will require eliminating some policing budgets. And that's a really hard thing for, I think, a lot of people to grapple with. So read on it. If you look at the stats, if you look at the actual data, you can see that the policing that we have right now doesn't do much to eliminate existing crime. So what are some other ways to prevent that from happening? So read the work of abolitionists, read the work of Ruth Wilson Gilmore and Mariam Kaba, go to 8toabolition.com because it's an ongoing cycle. Because if you keep uh, underservicing people, underserving these communities, not giving them adequate resources for real public safety, then you have you know these spurts of uprisings, then you have backlash to that, and then it just keeps going, going, and going because you, know, you just get law and order that just makes the problem worse. So if everyone is tired of this cycle, you're going to have to cut it where the source is. And a lot of that is from very right-wing, right-leaning police departments and all the infrastructure, liberal to conservative, that supports it with the DAs, with the police unions, with all of that, with judges, with juries. It's a big system, but you start by the simple one is just getting to the root of the cause, which is that. And then there are obviously some other systemic issues voting for policies like Medicare for all, voting for policies that are going to help people out economically, um, because that is, you know, capitalism and white supremacy are are uh, intermingled, and they both kind of create this toxic mix that leads to these little rebellions that happen throughout history for centuries. Having been 
living under quarantine during this pandemic, how is it to be out in the streets seeing a rebellion like this uh, of such significance? Uh, it's, I, I, I mean, I am encouraged by people who are using their voice and, you know, these are, these are kids, you know, they are like 17, 18, 19. And I call everybody a kid in this situation because they pretty much all are. They're like under 25 years old. They're coming out of here with like their makeshift shields. I don't even know how they're getting them. They look like the, uh, those orange and white barriers. It looks like they're taking the tops of those barriers and, the, and making them into shields. And so, you know, as a human, you know, I'm a, I'm a reporter, I'm a journalist, and I have to have a certain amount of objectivity. As a human, I have a lot of compassion and empathy for people who are really, you know, literally we're seeing it risking their lives to just get something very basic. To be able to say this man's life matters, that you should not be executed on the street, that we should not have anarchy and um, or I should say that we should not have vigilantism and police unions and police departments scaring us into not being able to live our full lives. And that's a very simple thing. They're just asking to be able to receive the same benefits of the Constitution that white people tend to get or that white people of privilege tend to get. So it's uh, it's very admirable that they're still out here. They're even out here last night, even after the the sh the shooting of, of you know one of their comrades or two excuse me two of their comrades. It's courageous, Malika Jabali, attorney, writer, activist, columnist for the Guardian, speaking to us from Kenosha. Thank you so much. Thank you, Aaron.